You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Ethel Rohan. Born and raised in Ireland, Ethel now lives in San Francisco. Her 2017 debut novel, The Weight of Him, was a San Francisco Chronicle Best Book, and it won a Plumeri Fellowship, a Silver Nautilus Award, and a Northern California Publishers and Authors Award. Her first short story collection, Cut Through the Bone, was long listed for the Story Prize, and her second, Good Night Nobody, was long listed for the Edge Hill Prize. Today we're going to talk about her third collection, In the Event of Contact, which came out last month and won a 2019 Zunk Short Story Collection Prize. Bitch Media describes it as a timely read about the importance of connecting with other people on our own terms, and Bustle calls it one of 2021's must-read collections. Ethel Rohan, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much, Clara. I'm delighted to be here. It's it's really wonderful to have you, and this was such a such a fantastic and rich collection. So thank you so much for writing it and for sharing it. Thank you. The title story in this collection is about a, a young girl who develops a phobia of human contact and the tension between her need to forego touch and the desires of those closest to her to be able to touch her and have some connection. I think it's something that a lot of us can relate to right now as coronavirus vaccines become more widely available and we start having to figure out how we're going to make our way back into the public sphere after more than a year in isolation without a lot of physical touch. Right. So I wanted to ask you about the inspiration for this story and what you were hoping to explore through it. And then I guess also, yeah, we'll, we'll start there. What inspired this story? That's great. I would say that its it, its origins go back many years. So obviously, it I had no idea of the pandemic or you know the coincidence of the timing of this book coming out right now, with themes and a title that yeah. do sort of conjure everything pandemic related. So that's coincidental, and I'm happy to go back to that again. But to directly respond to your question, this story came about. I think we we always write about what fascinates us, uh, what compels our imagination, what sticks. And now that I've written, this is my fourth full length book. Um, Mm. And so I I can see, you know, there's enough work there now that I can see the patterns and the repeating themes, the obsessions. And I'm really obsessed with this idea of boundaries and trespass um, And the main character having this phobia, um, hapophobia, which is extreme fear of human touch. Um, I think that origins goes back like much of what, you know, I fixate on. And that is goes back to my childhood. I, I was raised in Dublin, Ireland, and my parents, my dad in particular, was quite eccentric. Um, they, they had several quirks and It was never talked about. It was just normalized. Like, for example, um, my dad would cut the cuffs of his socks. He cut off the sleeves of his shirts and cardigans. Uh, He Hmm. always, regardless of like the brutal Irish weather, he always traveled. uh, He always drove with the car window rolled down, um, not fully, but, you know, in freezing Irish rainstorms, yeah. 
And, and that, I think, was linked to claustrophobia, which, again, was never discussed. And my mother had something similar in that she could never bear anything around her troth. So, you know, she always mm. wore V-necks. She would never wear a necklace. She would break out in rashes, you know, if jewelry was anything but gold or silver. And, you know, we're from a Dublin north side working class family. Um, so she didn't get to wear a lot of jewelry. Um so those type of things, like those oddities, I think stick with me. And I have my own phobias. I actually also am claustrophobic and I'm terrified like, of driving on the freeway. So, so mm. much of my fear, I, I suffer from anxiety. It's about, you know, control, what I can and can't control. And obviously in life, there's so much that we can't. And this idea of triplets, you know, I have twin sisters. Yes, I wanted to ask you about the triplets because so so many books do explore twin relationships, but triplets is 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 not that common in in That's stories. That's right. That's right. And I think I identified or you know I gravitated toward the triplets because I am the older sister. My twin sisters are three years younger, and we were very much, I'm from a family of six children, so three boys, three girls, and and the three girls very much forged this triangular relationship. Um, In some ways, there was a split gender-wise between, you know, the siblings, and we very much aligned by basically being the girls of the family and we bonded together. And so I'm fascinated by three, the number three. and in storytelling, it's a great uh, right. The rule trope. of three, absolutely. And also with three in a relationship, which I'm fascinated by, people, characters, and relationships, there tends to be tension. You know, we we're sort of programmed to pair, and so this idea of you know twins having this this cemented bond um, that that we're all quite familiar with, I just have a lot of fun might sound odd because it's it's a story that deals with dark themes but I enjoyed exploring the dynamics between the three sisters and the various tensions and the shifting of the power dynamics between them and the alliances um, you know shows like like Survivor that are so popular it is this idea of you know forming alliances and that you right. know alone you know, it's it's so difficult alone to to succeed um, and and connection and all of that. So in many ways, it's the perfect story to kick off the collection in that it really is the umbrella themes for the entire 14 stories. It's interesting. I mean, those two things in combination, right, this obsession with boundaries or this interest in boundaries and the shifting power dynamics in this triplet relationship, so much of that has to do with one sister's ability or inability to respect the boundaries of the other. Absolutely. And that shifts, you know, and I think for the protagonist who is really obsessed with, with the sister that she cannot touch, um, yeah. it's gone beyond yearning to touch her. It's begun. It's it's at a point of where she's trying to force control of that situation and, and insert herself in a physical way with her sister that her sister does not want. Um, So it's about consent as well. I was just really fascinated to journey along with the protagonist and see, would she come to that realization? And and she does, you know, she realizes at at a point late in the story that um, she's not going to get her way and, and shouldn't get her way. Um, And, and the split is, irredeemable it's it's not going to be resolved and 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 she has that realization and it's the idea that you know she's forever changed 
by that epiphany, if you will. And there's a fracture there, you know, that, that that's heartbreaking, yeah. but, but it is true and real. And, um, you know, I, I imagine those sisters going on and they still have so much growth, you know, they still have so much to learn about boundaries and, and control. And I mean, I think that's a common theme that you see in a lot of the in a lot of the twin fiction, right? Is uh, the sort of difficulty of separating yourself from the other, and because this one sister, Ruth, has this extreme phobia of touch, it sort of forces that separation at a point I think well earlier in the triplets development than than is typical. Right, right, and and you. As you said, the issue of dominance, you know, with with twins, it's it's um, they have done all sorts of studies and it's a fact that, you know, one twin will dominate. And that's just something I think that happens. And that's why the, the separation of the self is so important, you know, to have your own agency and to become a fully realized person. And to then sort of negotiate the contract between both of you with issues of dominance. I think there is a real issue among twins um, with boundaries and among Mm. siblings, you know, uh, with boundaries, you know, within families. I think we do and say things to each other that we would not do uh, in other relationships, you know, particularly friendships um, and partner relationships. We would not get away with it. So I'm really fascinated as families there are sort of our nuclear relationships. There are primary relationships, certainly for the most important formative years of our life. And yet there are so many cross boundaries and so many trespasses. Um, and I just find it fascinating. And I find it really interesting, you know, the families that can go on to sort of resolve a lot of that but far more interesting to me, particularly as a storyteller, are the families that keep perpetuating those childhood patterns, mm. you know, and, and just keep breaking boundaries and, and hurting each other and, and going too far. One thing that I kept coming back to while I was reading this is a recent essay by Melissa Phoebos in, I think, New York Times Magazine called I Spent My Life Consenting to Touch I Didn't Want. Did you, did you yes, get a chance I to did. read that? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Well, so just for the listeners who may have not, um, in it, Phoebus describes all this, the myriad ways that she's given in to bodily experiences and touches that she didn't want, either out of fear for her own safety, to feel control in a situation where she doesn't have any, or, or maybe to make somebody else happy. So yeah, I was curious how you thought of that, and if you have looked back at this story through that lens at all. Absolutely, because I think... Um another point is is this idea of being you know the good girl the nice girl that we're so conditioned as girls and women you know this facade of politeness um you know you know kiss kiss your uncle you know um hug your aunt this kind of thing and that we allow no agency for the child you know no choice for the child you know sort of and we're very, as a society, and it's true of, you know, my Irish culture here, I, I think it's fair to say it's quite universal, this idea that, um, you know, girls must be pleasing. Hmm. We don't like children that aren't warm and fuzzy. You know, we don't like children that that don't smile, yeah. that don't, you know, this type of thing. So uh, the smiling, obliging um 
And of course, you know, those prescriptions are very, very helpful to patriarchy because they allow it to persist and allow it to persist at the levels of power that they do. You know, I was raised to be a good girl. I was raised to be a nice girl. I was raised to smile, to be polite. And I have suffered so many trespasses in my youth that I would not, had I been even exposed to the idea that I could say no, that I could say F you, you know, this type of thing. Um, And that just, they were ideas that I wasn't even exposed to, that I had that agency, that I had the power, that I had that right, you know, to say, this is my body. And, you know, this is what I do and don't want you to do to it. And this is what I do and don't want to do with it. So I I hope that's something that comes true in my work um, because I feel it deeply. I I feel the rights and the beauty of of the female body, the woman's body. Um, But I also feel so much grief and anger as regards trauma. And you mentioned, you know, male power and male violence. Yeah, they they touch me deeply, both personally and and as a storyteller and just as a, a citizen, a woman. And you dedicated this book to survivors. Yeah, um, well, I, I myself am a survivor of, of childhood uh, sexual abuse uh, by, uh, thank you, uh, by a uh, you know a friend of my parents who, you know, to this day is sort of in 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 familiar lore is still hailed as like this this great guy and uh, he was lovely and and this you know, and um, I didn't speak up then. I haven't spoken out since because he's passed away and, and, and I don't feel there's anything to be gained. I think that would be, I would just be causing pain for uh, the family he's left behind. So it gets really complicated. Um, I find even like, I think I'm a strong, powerful woman, but I've had to work really, really hard to get to this place. And like I said, I just was not exposed as a child to the type of, you know, philosophies that of female woman empowerment. I, it was again, just the be nice, be good, play your part. Uh, you know, children are seen, not heard, all of those type of ideologies. And so I'm now at a point where I identify a survivor, but I'm a little frustrated by that in that I feel we need to have language beyond that um, because I feel like I'm more of a survivor. Um, you know, warrior might be a step too far, but the trauma is horrific. And, you know, even as much as I spent many, many years with my mind denying that truth, my body let me know uh, just how much I had suffered and how much work I had to do in particular becoming a mother and giving you know birth to my first daughter and having really really traumatic uh, responses to her tiny tiny body and my touch of her body I really realized how traumatized I'd been um, how wounded I still was even though I was highly functioning and had not yet been diagnosed with you know severe anxiety or PTSD I, you know I went on to have suicidal ideation depression um, at that point I was still this super achiever you know looking for validation you know being the superwoman I could do it all I'm fine it wasn't really that big a deal which is another message that women are taught 
to, you know, to, to, to pontificate. It's like this idea of, Oh, it wasn't that bad, you know, get on with it. You know, that was in the past, all of that type of thing. So I dedicated the book to survivors and I tried in the stories to offer a range of the ways that we survive and the ways we are wounded because there are so many microaggressions. There are so many tiny moments of violation and violence that cumulatively are very, very damaging. So it's not something as huge as my personal experience that um, sort of chips away at womanhood. Um, and, and I wanted to try and convey that. And I also wanted to try and represent, uh, you know, people who are injured in ways mm. that might seem surprising so that people might think and talk about the subject. They might be able to access it because yeah. I think that's one of the big issues we have as a society and culture is we don't talk about this stuff. You know, we look away from it. And as long as we keep looking away from it, it's going to persist at the levels it does. And the stats are horrific and we somehow normalize them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting to me, in part, hearing you talk about the way that your body told you that these uh, that these experiences affected you, um, the way that you know Ruth's refusal to give into these things is in her body, and I think so many of your characters in these stories, and I think in in your other fiction as well, are very deeply embodied. Right, like there's a, a physicality to them, and their sort of spatial relationships to other people are a big part of what drives them and major sources of conflict. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that too. Like where does that interest in bodies come from? How do, how do you see it playing into your work and how conscious of a, of a theme is it for you? Oh, that's very nicely observed. Thank you. Um, I would say for me, I think I write so much about being in the body because I've spent so much of my life outside of my body. Mm. You know, so much of writing is, is the power, you know, to, to create worlds and situations and characters, you know, almost revising history, if you will, or just being able to be in a space and place that I was denied for so long. And I think our bodies are these huge sources of information for us. You know, we're in constant conversation and and unfortunately often conflict with our own bodies. And so for years, my body dissociation, where I literally was outside of my body, um, particularly during intimacy and and going back, you know, to childhood and teenhood, um, you know, during abuse, I literally just went outside my body. Like, you know, I, I, I can actually, it was so distinct that I was sort of hovering above looking down on it all. And I don't think I ever really reclaimed my body until recent years. So I'm fascinated that the mind and body had that much power that they can split in that way. Um, you know, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm living testimony to they can, um, just in the way that the mind and memory can split. Uh, I blocked out so much for so many years. And there's still much, much of my childhood I don't remember. I've tried. I don't know if I'm still protecting myself. I try not to overthink that, though. You know, I'm very much, uh, I've worked a lot in recent years on mindfulness and being in the present. So I'm at a point where I'm accepting that for whatever reasons, I can't reclaim that. 
Uh, but that's where I celebrate being a storyteller, where I can reclaim so much um, in story. And the body will always be my shtick, if you will, um, in storytelling. It's it's an amazing uh, vehicle that is a rich source of information and a rich source of deeper truths than we, you know, maybe consciously tell ourselves. You know, I think our subconscious and our bodies are very, very closely linked. And I'm fascinated by that. And I think with each story and in life in general, I'm I'm a forever student. You know, I'm always interested in how much we still don't know, how much I have yet to know and understand, um, you know, about the body and the mm. tangible and the intangible. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. So as I say, I and I think that's true of all writers, you know, I because I'm fascinated by it and because I've been so touched by it personally, it's going to keep repeating in my work. Before the pandemic, we heard a lot about how students needed to work, but not a whole lot about the value of play in community. Monday, June 7th, and again on Friday, June 11th on Talk of the Bay, Suki Wessling interviews two people with exciting news about programs in our community. Rebecca London is a UCSC sociology professor, and Mariah Roberts is director of County Park Friends. They discuss how play and community building bring increased social and emotional well-being, which in turn is proven to support learning and academics. Join us to hear all the exciting new programs in the works for children and teens in our community. That's Monday at 5 p.m. and again Friday at 6 a.m. right here on KSquid 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Many voices, one station. There's a story in this collection that, that sort of goes to the other end of things from the title story. It's about two older women, and, and one of them is a, a widow three times over, um, who is sort of exploring in this story her deep desire and inability to find the intimacy and connection and physical connection that she's looking for. Can you talk about that a little? I don't know why. My, I, the story, the first short story I ever remember writing, I was a teen, I was, I was only about 13, and I wrote it about an old man. I don't remember anything more about it except it was about an old man and, and swallows. And, and mm. there was some sort of some, I don't know if I'd even fully realized it, but there was perhaps some subconscious theme of, of migration in that story. And my entire life, I have been fascinated by older people. I'm now bridging the gap between that generation um, more and more. But I just find it interesting. Like I don't think a lot of young people are certainly, you know, girls and teens are fascinated as regards wanting to tell stories about the elderly. Um, mm. But I've always felt that kinship. And it could be that I lost both my grandfathers before I was born. I, so I never met them. I, my godfather, I'm an Irish Catholic who baptized and, and my godfather disappeared shortly after I was born or baptized and uh, never reappeared again. And so this idea of, you know, the missing and particularly male presence as being missing, um, I see repeating in my work, but first and foremost, I love women. So I had these two elderly characters in collisions and um, she just has this really surprising encounter with this American tourist who kind of comes into a space that's very familiar and very routine. You know, these two women have been doing this for a long, long, long time. And the same things happen over and over again. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's great same people say that. the same thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they're sitting in the same 
you know, bar stools and, and they each have their space and they each have their roles. So in a way that scene inside that bar, they're, they're a family of their own. Um, and I'm fascinated by families. So you have this sort of everydayness dynamic and you have the, the comfort for them in the routine and in the known. And then there's this disruption, right? And, and stories are all about disruptions and disturbances. And so there's this disruption to the everyday and the expected when this young American tourist enters and he has lost his leg. And this encounter has a profound effect on her. And it's also the backdrop of the news reports of the two moons and the moons had collided and we now have our lone moon. Um, so this is sort of the perfect storm, if you will, of, of these tiny moments that all came together to have a profound effect on her. And I, I love that story. I just love that because I, I felt like I knew them intimately. You know, I just felt like I knew that place and that space and those dynamics. I wanted to gift all of them with this surprise you know, guest who who brings in something uh, unexpected. And I believe, you know, I think about the characters after the story ends and the protagonist will be forever, you know, imprinted by that encounter in the best possible way, you know, that that she was sort of saluted and she was recognized as a survivor, uh, you know, when he raises his glass to her and this idea that he says, you know, it's extraordinary the two moons didn't destroy each other when they mm. collided. Um, but in fact, they solidified as one and this idea of we're also survivors and, you know, for her to have never felt that acknowledgement. And, and as I'm saying it out loud now, I wasn't conscious of that, but I think there's some part of me that, you know, still both yearns and also in a defiant way, you know, wants that acknowledgement by whom I'm not sure, maybe just by society as a whole, you know, that I have survived, um, but I should never have been violated in that way in the first place. And, and you know, I'm, I would encourage society to really think about complicity and mm. how we don't talk about these things and how the going back to Phoebus's essay, you know, these um, messages, very powerful messages we get, um, both, you know, outright spoken and, and subtly uh, forced on us, you know, that's all complicity that allows, you know, these horrific traumas and violations and crimes to occur so yeah I, I'm just realizing now I think there is a part of me that identify with that character who mm -hmm. was nobody's ever acknowledged you know how much I've suffered and how much I've overcome and so I I, I was pleased for her at the end of that story well I think now's a good time to have you read a little bit from the book and before you do would you would you mind just sharing with us what you're going to read and setting it up a little bit Absolutely. Um, I am going to read a story titled Unwanted. Um, it's set in Dublin in 1980, and it's a Northside neighborhood that is actually my own hmm. Northside neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and I'm going to start at the beginning of the story, so I don't need to give a background, I don't think, and I'll just give you a little flavor of it. All right. Sounds good. Unwanted. Every Sunday after Mass, I parted ways with my family and hurried straight to Bob's Bargain Bookshop, my 50 pence pocket money tied in my fist. It was 1980 in Dublin, and I was a black-haired, dark-eyed, 14-year-old runt of a lad. 
On a flush week, I'd also have my takings from refunds on the glass bottles I collected out of the bins and lanes around our neighborhood, empty, sharp-scented treasure. Our locale was also home to Midas's gambling arcade, Mountjoy Prison, Crossgun Snooker Hall, Luigi's Chipper with its snapping, popping Pac-Man machine, and the reek of the Royal Canal. Occasionally, I stole money from Dad's hiding spot under the inky floral carpet beneath his bedroom window to add to my dismal funds for books, comics, sweets, cigarettes and cider. I only ever took a pound or two at one time, knowing not to get greedy or careless. Amazingly, Da, who was skint, miserly and forever howling about the cursed recession, never seemed to notice the missing money. I sometimes worried he was playing a game, waiting to catch me in the act and pounce. Then he would demand his pound of flesh, like Shakespeare's Shylock. If I can catch him once upon the hip, I will feed fat the ancient grudge I bear him. Da was forever reciting that bit with alarming passion, fist on his heart, glitter in his blue eyes, and an actor's boom to his voice. But he never seemed to be aiming the bard's words at me. Each Sunday, I spent hours browsing inside Bob's bargains, rifling elbow deep through the discount bins and scanning the shelves of book spines, their jagged top lines like broken horizons. I bought as many used mysteries as I could afford and sometimes sprang for a brand new book that I couldn't bear to delay reading. I sped through every adventure of the famous five, Secret Seven and Hardy Boys, and especially loved the Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, brilliant. What I liked most about the best mysteries was not being able to figure out how things were going to end. Too many people around me seemed to think they knew exactly how everything, their lives, the world was going to end, and it was rarely good. I preferred to keep my options wide open. Thank you for reading that. You are yourself a transplant from Ireland to the United States. Many of your stories take place in Ireland, Many of them, a few of them take place in the U.S. Many of them involve sort of collisions of those two cultures. Can you tell me about how that sort of idea of setting and of sort of a place where you do or don't belong fits into your writing? You know, it's interesting. Even before I was an immigrant, um, you know, right back to my earliest memories, I have felt I don't belong you know, at, at the opening, you mentioned this idea of, you know, the pandemic ending and we're all sort of returning to, we're not quite sure what, mm. uh, post-normal, post-pandemic, if you will. And I'm hearing a lot of anxiety around that. You know, we're sort of, we're re-emerging from this very, very strange hibernation is much too kind a word for it. Um, and coming back into a world that has changed uh, and, and right now is is in chaos and very tumultuous. Um, look at India and, and Israel and Palestine. And so I know I'm not alone in my feeling of not belonging in my sense of I'm always just a little out of sync with everybody else. And in thinking about these stories and their themes, you know, I realize it's not even so much belonging for me personally. It goes deeper to, and, and for some of my characters, it goes this deep. This idea of, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not accepted, and I'm not mm. acceptable. Uh, and as a girl, you know, the first sort of big um, issue for me with that and around that was my voice, my accent. Um, it was 
questions, you know, where are you from? And when I would say I'm from Phippsburg, which is my neighborhood, uh, it was, ugh, it don't sound like you're from Phippsburg because the accent, you know, would tend to be a little hard. And I had this sort of very soft, what they called posh voice. And, mm. and you know, you, you, you sound English, you know, you don't. And so I've, I've, that has sort of haunted me, you know, kind of chased me my whole life that I don't sound the way I'm expected to. And again, it gets back to these expectations on, on women um, and on people in general, you know, with regard to class. Uh, I don't sound the way I should. I don't sound the way I'm expected to. And you, when I go back to Ireland now, oh, you have such an American accent. Um, commas here. You don't sound that Irish or, oh, you've lost your Irish accent. You know, this type of thing. Um, and none of that's ever intentional. And yet I feel the perception is that it is that I'm yeah. making an active choice to kind of discard or take on accents. And you add to that, this layer that I have, which I'm so frustrated by, but what can I do? I, I, I'm a mimic. So, you know, if I'm speaking to somebody from Scotland in 15 minutes, I'm now adopting this, uh, <laughs> you know, unconsciously doing it, not wanting to do it. Uh, it's something I do. I think those things are related, though, right? Like that feeling of of not belonging or being in some kind of liminal space. I think it it drives us to adapt more, to try to find, try to very quickly connect where in whatever circumstance we're in with whoever we're faced with. Absolutely, and and again, my my thinking is is shifting uh, in that way that I'm now thinking more. You know, how do I embrace this? You know, mm. how would we be were we not compelled to connect, driven to connect? You know, I think life would be unbearable because you know, if we if we were content to be solitary, you know, if it was enough to be solitary, imagine what the world would be. Because now, even with this. Uh, you know, compulsion to be connected. There is so much disconnection. There is so much um, disharmony. There are so many fractures and utter voids, you know, mm -hmm. and that is even though we're programmed to connect and, and to be community. So I am grateful definitely for that need uh, to connect. And it is something that I'm embracing more and more. And in a previous interview, you know, one of the questions posed or an observation made was that perhaps particularly as a storyteller, I might feel this need or, or this state of being on the outside of things because that's necessary for me to witness, for me to record. To and to be, absolutely. So again, that was, you know, and you think, well, weren't you aware of that? And it's like, you know, sometimes you just need to hear things in a certain way at a certain point in your life. And that was a really very recent but profound moment for me. And I thought, I think I'm feeling more and more toward embracing, you know, what I previously considered to be flaws or failings uh, on my behalf. I so said, well, what instead of my feeling like there's something so wrong with me, I can't connect. What if I think, why don't I embrace the fact that I sometimes have difficulty connecting and not, not let it be a source of anxiety, but something that I can sort of gently explore and find, you know, the, the joy in it and, and find the, the opportunity for creativity in it. And that is that, yes, I get to observe. And um, I hope that my observations contribute 
you know, toward in my stories, generating empathy, generating perspective, and particularly around subject matter, as we've covered that, unfortunately, feels almost passe, like, oh, you know, we don't want to hear any more about childhood sexual abuse, you know, this type of thinking, but it's not going away. You know, we have to address it. We can't change it until we address it. So I'm also somebody who I think has felt frequently like I like I don't exactly belong or I don't exactly fit in. And one thing that I have thought about it recently, I think a lot about what fitting in looks like in different communities. Um, in I'm a patrilineal Jew. So in the Jewish community, right, like there are things that I can't do anything about that cause me not to fully fit in. Um, I am a bisexual woman who is married to a man, so I fit neither the expectations of the straight community nor of the queer community fully. And I think one sort of thing that I have come to is that this idea of belonging or of community as being one thing, it's a protective measure, not just to keep people out. I think that's more of a side effect, but to create a strong identity among the people who are sort of inside it. And so one thing that I think is is useful for and uh, valuable in people who don't fit in but still exist in those spaces is that we can kind of question the internal logic of that. Like, is this, is this identity everything that we want to be? Where is it excluding people? Where is right. it causing harm? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that idea of exclusion is so important. And when you said you know, I, I don't fit because I don't meet the expectations. You know, it's the expectations are the issue. It's the yeah. expectations that need to change and broaden or maybe not exist at all. You know, I am very optimistic about where we're going um, as a society, despite so much horror right now and so much recent horror. I do feel and see this enormous shift. Like I'm, I have so much hope this, this younger generation coming up, they, I think are blazing through these types of limited roles, this, you know, heterosexual norms, all of that. Like we're, they're just blowing it wide open. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll all benefit from that, you know, issues as well in, in my story collection, in my worldview around toxic masculinity, you know, men suffer enormously mm. because of toxic masculinity also. And so this idea of, you know, we will all be better off when we can embrace a more inclusive, you mentioned exclusive, a more inclusive way of being and of perceiving the world and of allowing people to be, you know, that, that I get really frustrated you know, I don't understand all the isms, you know, yeah. just allow people to be, we are all human beings. And I, I'm actually quite excited by this shift, you know, and, and this, um, the direction we're headed in, I think ultimately is a very good one. I think things are being blown wide open and yes, the expectations are going to be redefined, if not completely just blasted clear. Well, I want to go back to, to the sort of nuts and bolts of your writing and writing process for a bit. You have written both short form and long form fiction. How is your process different from one to the next or, or is it? Do you know what form a story is going to take when you start out? Yeah, I don't plot or plan. I am very much kind of, I, I start with a spark. There's some kernel that gets me to the page and and sort of 
I know a new work is coming. Um, and I instinctively know whether it's a short story or a novel. And I don't overthink it. I, again, just kind of go, I used to go word by word. Now I sort mm. of sit and ruminate and, and I actually almost get into a trance-like state where I, you know, play out the scenes in my mind. And that just makes for a much more enjoyable, you know, flowing process when I'm less looking at the blank page and filling words as opposed to going to the blank page to fill it with scenes. I find the short story a really difficult beast. Uh, I mentioned earlier about being a forever student. I think I will be a forever student in particular of the short story form. I love it. Um, You know, even the stories I love, I'm not always sure what it is exactly Mm. I love about them. And I think that's the the richness of the short story form that each time you read it, it offers something new and different. The novel I'm much more comfortable with as a form. Uh, I just seem to know I get less stressed about what I'm doing I feel less intimidated by the novel which may sound odd given its size and and (laughs) the commitment involved Um, and I'm curious to have you interrogate that why do you think you write so much short fiction why do you think it is what is challenging in that what makes it more difficult and why do you feel more comfortable in this longer form Uh, I think it probably gets back to the imposter syndrome. You know, I I have less of a sense of I know what I'm doing and more a sense of the short story of working through like this spiritual channel. I get to a point after much, 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 much revision where things start to click into place. And I have this sense of the story was there all along. You know, it's just waiting for me to find it. Hmm. And it feels... I'm going to say it, it does feel magical, you know, that it it's sort of like, where did this come from? You know, I think, I think when I finish a short story, I have more of a sense of wonder than perhaps I do with the novel. And maybe that's just because I'm with the novel for a much longer time. And so it seems more organic and I'm more, I think, aware of I've written this, mm-hmm. um, Whereas it was interesting, even, you know, right down to the final sort of proofread within the event of contact, I did have some moments where I was, did I write this? Like, who wrote this? You know, like it was almost like you just realize what an altered state you are in when you're writing at a really deep, deep level where you're so inside the world and the characters and it's surreal. It is a surreal experience. And and then to get from the creating and the conjuring to that sense of I have a finished story, that also feels surreal. You know, it's like, where did this come from? Um, And like I said, maybe with a novel and that world and those characters, because I'm in it longer and it's a different kind of work that it's less wondrous to me, I think perhaps when I when I get to the finished product than the short form does. Um, and, and I, again, I, I'm a big believer in energy and momentum in life. And if, you know, you follow the momentum, you follow what feels good. And for whatever reason, I tend to have a lot more success with my short stories than I do the novel. You know, I just said the other night that I have, I believe five, if not six novel manuscripts. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm hopeful that at least some of them will, will you know, enter the world as, as books and, and, and that readers will get to access them. But um, I don't know. It's just a much slower, grueling process novel-wise and publication 
and the short story form I seem to have more success with, which again is interesting because, you know, certainly as regards publishing, there's this preconception that short story collections are not as popular, uh, don't sell as well, that type of thing. So the odds are stacked against you getting a short story and certainly a short story collection published, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of three, three for one right now with Here my race, race. Yeah. Ratio. Defying expectations once again. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know about that, but um, I'll, I'll take the lucky breaks when I can get them. Believe me. Join KSQD Thursdays at 5 p.m. for Pastures of Plenty, a four-part series on the history of farm labor and immigration in California as seen through the eyes of the workers. This week's episode looks at the European immigrants who came to work the fields of California, including Santa Cruz County. The Great Depression of the 1930s saw bloody labor battles across the state as workers began to demand their rights. We also hear about the deportation of nearly 400,000 Mexicans and American citizens of Mexican descent. You probably haven't heard this chapter of our history. This powerful story airs Thursday afternoon from 5 to 6, right here on K-Squid 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. Many voices, one station. Well, so let's talk a little bit about structure in short fiction, especially if it's not planned for you. I'm kind of interested in how and how you develop that structure and especially endings. Endings are so hard. How do you know like what needs to happen? How do you know when it's ready to end? The endings are, are so, so hard. Um, I, as I, I revise a lot and I think my early drafts I have quite a Zen-like relationship with them and that I give myself permission and I give them permission to be awful, you know, to be a little clueless. I don't expect even a, a, you know, beginning, middle, end with those early drafts. It's really, I think, is it Tilly Olson who said it, but, you know, it's really just me telling myself the story, me figuring Mm -hmm. out. um, I usually know character because when I spoke earlier about the sparks that start the story, they're usually characters, usually a phrase or an interesting detail, an image, but it's always a character. You know, I, I mm. always know who 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 that is. Um, I might not know anything other than it's, you know, he, she, they, whatever. Um, and, and what particular moment has stuck with me and, and, and driven me to the page. Um, and so it's me figuring out who the character is, the main character, who are the supporting characters, you know, what was kind of the burning need, you know, what I talked earlier about the, the various disruptions and disturbances, you know, what's what's the major disturbance that kind of kicks off the story? What's, what's the shift from the status quo that's the catalyst for the story? And then part of my process is I'll, I'll interview my characters when I kind mm. of know who they are in the world they're in. I'll, I'll kind of then do more of a psychological. So why now? You know, why? Why are you coming to me now? Why am I telling your story now? And I'm really fascinated by, you know, why people are the way they are, you know, why they do and say and think the things they do. So a lot of me in early drafts is just answering all those questions for myself. At some point, about midway through the process, I need to know what the heart of the story is. You know, that kind of gets back to the why now, what's at stake. Um, you know, I, one of my questions I often get uh, from students is, you know, how do you know whose story you're telling? Oh, and that's it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you're telling the story of whoever has the most at stake in, in this particular um, story structure. So, you know, what's at stake is, you know, what what do you serve to win or, or lose here? And why does it matter so much to you? So things like that um, are all questions I pose within the story and that the story answers for me. 
And then endings, it's, there is a lot of mystery in that for me. Um, and again, I think that's true of all writers. You know, how, how do you end something? How do you know when it's finished? I don't think it's ever finished. Mm. Uh, but, you know, when is it, when can you hand it off to an editor and, or say, I think this is worthy to be read, uh, to be published? It's when I've kind of met all those beats within the story. Has the story done this? You know, has it conveyed what's at stake? Has it conveyed what was, uh, you know, won or lost? Um, has it conveyed why it matters and why it matters so much? Um, and for me, there's always this emotional element. Like as a reader myself, my bar is I want to be moved, you know, mm. and in whatever way I, I, I don't particularly care but I want to feel something through the reading experience I want to feel like it's an interaction like for me as a writer and a reader there's no better moment in the story or moments when I can say I know exactly what that is or I know exactly how that feels or that's so true or oh my gosh you know all of these things that you you have an interaction you can you identify and relate and you're seeking um, connection with your characters Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're, and you're seeking representation and you're seeking, you know, reflection of what you feel and what you care about and what makes you angry and what makes you suffer. So all of that. So, and then I kind of do the strange thing, maybe I don't know, you know, I I know most writers again, read their work out loud. um, And I'm not a musical person at all, but I am very aware of rhythm, particularly in Mm -hmm. my own storytelling. And for me, and again, I can't kind of quite quantify it, but for me, when the story, when I feel like, as I said, process-wise and craft-wise, I've hit all those points, then I read it aloud. And when it gets to the point where it's a rhythm for me, a certain rhythm, I feel like I can let it go. Like, okay, it's done. It's, you know, it's, I talk about it saying to me in a certain way. Mm. And then I'm like, okay, I, I feel like I can let this work go. It's really interesting. I think that's... <laughs> I have I haven't heard someone like talk about that ex- that sort of musical experience of their work before. That's fascinating. Yeah. What I find so peculiar about that is I am not a musical person. I love music, but I can't sing. I'm tone deaf. I mean, I can't even sing "Happy Birthday" on key. Well, but rhythm <laughs> is such a different part of music, right? It's, it is. It, it's it is. nothing to do with pitch in, in a lot of ways. That's so true. That is so true. So I think that raises another good question which is what kind of stories interest you as a reader like what do you look for what makes you connect with something I am fascinated by the strange and the quirky um in my MFA program one of our uh, distinguished visiting writers was Victor Laval and you know he said you know just be interesting you know for god's sake please be interesting and as a reader and as a writer that that again is sort of my goal the stranger the better like not quite veering into absurdism but like the quirkiness of like Flannery O'Connor or, mm. you know, Elizabeth Strout in the peculiarities and eccentricities of her characters. Uh, you know, Olive Kittredge is just like the quintessential complex character who's both quirky and yet you identify with and is wonderfully obli- unlikable, but also very relatable. Things like that, that's what I get off on, if you will, mm-hmm. when I'm reading. And that's what I hope to do in my own writing. I love suspense. I love tension. Um, I love twisting expectations. And yeah. And, and again, you know, even with what I mentioned earlier with my various obsessions and fascinations, and I don't read with that in mind and I don't write with that in mind. Um, I just kind of, I read a lot and I, you know, I'll gravitate towards whatever's recommended. I also, 
you know, make a particular point of supporting um, my fellow authors and, and a goal I've set for myself, certainly in the last, in recent years and, and more and more so going forward is to be more, you know, diverse and inclusive in, in my reading material. Who are you reading these days? Uh, I'm reading a lot of memoir. Um, mm. I'm just finishing up a memoir by author Gina Trossi um, called The Angle of Flickering Light. And that's beautiful. And, and for me, you know, that bar of, of being moved and just being amazed by humanity, you know, the worst of it and the best of it. And again, what we can overcome. It's just a really moving story of, you know, surviving a very dysfunctional family, a lot of shame and guilt mm-hmm. and really damaging messaging um, and going on to lose ourselves in addiction, which is, you know, another area that I identify with. And, you know, the escapism of that, you know, I have a friend who said, <laughs> You know, drugs are for people who can't do life or, or alcohol, or whatever else is so true. You know, you can't you can't do the wounds of life. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, a sort of a numbing way to, to divert and block out. So, yeah, a lot of memoir. Jennifer Bernie's The Other Mothers, uh, also another great read of 2021, just about to start, which is getting rave reviews. Um, I'm a member of the Writers' Grotto here in San Francisco and debut novel from Jenny Bittner, Here's a Game We Could Play, which is a bisexual love story. Um, mm. And the like, the tagline is just brilliant. It's a bisexual love story about librarians and poisoning. Oh, that so, sounds great. <laughs> I know, I know, absolutely. Um, recently read another great short story collection from... Uh, my fellow compatriot and Irish woman, Louise Kennedy, called The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. And just great. And again, kind of, you know, women-centered stories, women-centered issues, and just that use of like the gritty, you know, mm. finding finding the beauty in those wounds, you know, um, finding the beauty in, in trauma, you know, because that's the fine line I walk too with a lot of my characters like who come to me, my women characters who come to me as wounded. Like, it's interesting to me, one of the stories in the collection that was the most difficult and painful and really, you know, close to the bone for me was Blue Hot about, you know, the teenage girl who's in two major toxic relationships with her mother and, and with her boyfriend. So far, nobody has raised that at all. Like it has not come up in any interview. Uh, and I, I really, I find that interesting. Mm. Um, and maybe again, it's it's that the reader, you know, it, obviously it's not such a, a hot story for the reader, you know, but for me, it came from such a wounded place and was so difficult to write. And I wonder again, is it part of the, not looking at, you know, the awkwardness of, well, that's a difficult story to talk about. So we, you know, we won't go there, you know. It's easier to talk about the metaphors. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As I say that, I gravitate towards that because I, Louise Kennedy does it too. Like just this twisting of, of violence mm-hmm. and um, that it exists, you know, it and it exists in, in huge ways. And you know, art reflects life and is representative of life and our experiences and who has not experienced violence in one form or another. So I, I admire Louise Kennedy. I admire all writers who can navigate that. As I said, I have this issue with my 
women characters coming to me wounded and wanting to you know, honor their story, honor their dignity, honor their strength and resilience, while also not 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 representing and acknowledging their wounds. Yeah. You know, that a woman is strong and perhaps stronger because of her wounds. Uh, I know that's true for me, you know, this idea of the broken bone coming back stronger. Um, I now feel like a very empowered woman, as I mentioned earlier, took a lot of journeying and as horrific as some of my experiences have been and my trauma has been, it has made me who I am today. And, um, you know, I'm at a point in my journey now where I can embrace who I am today and I can love who I am today. So it's how do you show all that complexity, yeah. you know, in storytelling, it's, it's a, a huge task and yet we have to try. And that's something I feel very strongly about. Well, Ethel Rohan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Clara. You can learn more about Ethel at her website, ethelrohan.com, or you can buy a copy of In the Event of Contact at your local bookstore. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM or on ksqd.org. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksquid.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. Join me next month for a conversation with writer and game designer Stephen Grenade, whose interactive fiction explores the relationship between memory, physicality, and reality.